and making a difference every day. Welcome to the Animal Care and Welfare Podcast, iBuzz, where we combine the science and practice of animal welfare in a fun and engaging way, where we answer questions, find solutions, discuss tools, and achieve results, all for happy animals and people. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando, and this podcast is brought to you by Animal Concepts, and the Practical Animal Welfare Science Membership Experience. Let's buzz! Welcome to another episode of iBuzz, and today I'm honored to have Professor Emeritus and Zoo Director Emeritus, Terry Maple, who is an American behavioral research scientist, a well-known research scientist in the zoo community, and also a wildlife conservationist. Thank you so much for being with us today, Terry. I'm happy to be here. Wonderful. So, you know, this podcast is listened to by animal care professionals, veterinarians, zoo directors, and for those, and I think there's going to be, you know, very few, but, you know, also students who are coming into this field, uh, perhaps could you do an introduction to yourself? Well, I've been around for a while. Uh, I got my PhD at the University of California at Davis in uh, psychobiology and during the early years I worked in uh, a laboratory uh, operated by a Harlow disciple and uh, I did a lot of monkey research at the California Primate Research Center. It was behavioral research uh, about uh, social and emotional behavior and uh, as I was working with these animals uh, I became a little bit of a specialist on abnormal behavior. We used to call it abnormal behavior uh, or psychopathology. And uh, what I what I found interesting was as I went around in California, I always had an interest in zoos. I grew up in San Diego, but I had a zoo there that was pretty spectacular. And uh, when I would go to a zoo, I would see monkeys that reminded me of the crazy monkeys that we were studying at the private center. And I began to realize that zoo people did not completely understand what they were dealing with. And a lot of them did not realize they were creating these animals with isolation and deprivation, uh, which is all being studied by primatologists, but not necessarily shared with zoo people. So I started becoming a bridge from the basic research community to the zoo community. And when I took my first job at Emory University in 1975, uh, I began to work at the Yerkes Primate Center and the Atlanta Zoo, which at that time had orangutans and gorillas. Uh, and uh, only one gorilla at that time, Willie B. But um, they had aspirations. Uh, unfortunately, the zoo was not well funded. Uh, it was a bit of a mess. And it only got worse as I was working uh, in, the, in the area. 
And when the zoo uh, reached crisis stage, then uh, the mayor was having trouble figuring out what to do. So he asked me if I would consider coming over and being the interim zoo director. I'd never been a zoo director. I didn't know the first thing about being one, but I had leadership genes and I knew what some of the problems were and I felt like I could fix it if they'd give me the authority and the resources. So that was the beginning of a wonderful partnership that lasted 18 years. Uh, and then uh, later on, I took a job uh, at Palm Beach Zoo uh, for six years, uh, operating out a zoo that was a little bit short of talent and expertise. And I was able to elevate them uh, just a bit. So uh, it's been a great um, opportunity. I don't know if many uh, professors who have been given a zoo and then, you know, a tabula rasa, if you will, to uh, ride on and change and reform. But not only did we do that, uh, because I had students, we documented it every step of the way. We may be the only zoo that was ever uh, built on the shoulders of science. Um, and we did it for a very real purpose, and that was to offer change and improvement for the welfare of the animals from day one in 1984. So in the meantime, I've uh, uh, returned to teaching at Georgia Tech uh, for a while and then moved on uh, to Palm Beach. And uh, after that, I started uh, consulting and I've been uh, involved in consulting now for about 10 years. The latest uh, gig is Jacksonville Zoo. Uh, the fellow who runs the zoo, Tony Vecchio, who used to work for me. Now I'm working for him. And uh, it's, a, it's a pretty neat deal because they don't have to pay me. Uh, I have a donor, an anonymous donor, who likes my work. And she's been supporting me in all the consulting venues that I've had for the last five years. So it's uh, been a good run. I'm still still there, still uh, working with students and still uh, trying to build bridges to universities. That's just amazing. And, you know, for so many decades uh, that you have been uh, working and, you know, to start maybe talking about some of the things that you've done, because obviously in this podcast, we cannot come anywhere close uh, to covering five decades, but could you talk a little bit about, you talked about how, you know, Zoo Atlanta, you started, or Atlanta Zoo, where you started working and helping them and that they had troubles. In what ways did you transform and rebrand um, the zoo? Well, you know, it's a little bit easier when you're dealing with something that is a completely broken. Uh, there were no debates about fixing the zoo. Everybody knew it had to be done. We just had to create a plan and offer the leadership and then obtain the resources. Took a lot of fundraising, uh, some government involvement. But the government essentially gave up the zoo to the private sector. So we were the first Asia Zoo to privatize. And it worked really well for us. Uh, we have a relationship to government, but it's very loose and it allows us to get some government bonding. But from the beginning, uh, we did try to rebrand it. Um, we came up with the idea of Zoo Atlanta, 
because there were a lot of zoos that I had seen in Europe. Zoo Antwerp, Zoo Zurich seems to be the, the, the order that the words are used in, in uh, zoos that I had high respect for. So it occurred to me that if we turned the letters around from Atlanta Zoo to Zoo Atlanta, we would be making a distinct turnaround uh, by what we did and also by the image it suggests. It actually worked well for us. Recently, Miami changed their name to Zoo Miami. So uh, anytime they uh, copy you, you know, you always feel like you influence somebody. Uh, but um, branding the zoo was very important, but we had to also uh, fulfill the hopes and dreams of people in the community. And I always had very high standards. I used to say that I didn't need this job and uh, if, if they couldn't go along with me and make the changes that were needed, they could find somebody else. Uh, I never had to really uh, go with that threat because they liked having me around because it started working. <laughs> so, so that's been uh, the joy of it. And what have been some of the aspects? Uh, how did you did you like build all kinds of new um, habitats for animals? Or did you renew some of what was there? Or in what way did you go about turning this uh, around? Well, there were a lot of individual things that needed to be done. For one thing, we had a terrible cat uh, house uh, where the big cats were in tiny little cages, hard cages. I applied my knowledge of environmental psychology. I had worked with a professor named Robert Summer who wrote a book uh, called Tight Spaces. And it was all about uh, what he called hard architecture and uh, how to defeat it. So I was uh, going to develop naturalistic techniques of exhibition. I had the good fortune of bringing in John Cole and Gary Lee. And they were, of course, uh, beginning their careers uh, and revolutionizing zoo design all around the world. I still work with both of them. And uh, we were able to chart a course starting with uh, the great apes. Because with Willie B, everybody wanted to know uh, could Willie be a social gorilla? He had been raised in isolation for 27 years. So, so and my answer was, frankly, I didn't think he could. I, was, I didn't know for sure, but we were certainly going to try. So we made a deal with Yerkes to bring over gorillas uh, and orangutans, and we started forming groups. And eventually, Willie looked like he was uh, impacting uh, the others because the females in the other group started gravitating to the edges and, you know, if you pardon the expression, batting their eyelashes at him, doing everything to suggest that they liked him or they were intrigued by him. And so we, we tried uh, Willie with other gorillas and, and the grand experiment was published uh, and it worked uh, great. He, he did uh, become a social gorilla and then later down the road, about a year later, he started to copulate. So he was an isolated gorilla that recovered. Not all of them do. Later on, we got the gorilla Ivan from the mall in uh, Washington State, and he, didn't, he never uh, became a uh, reproducing gorilla. He copulated one time that we knew about. Otherwise, he was very human-centered. 
So they don't always uh, transform, but Willie had enough innate uh, ability to become a highly successful social gorilla. He sired seven offspring, he had a wonderful uh, family of females and, and, and offspring and became a real inspiration and, and uh, might say so, kind of a symbol of Atlanta and Atlanta's uh, trials and tribulations. So um, that was probably the most important thing we did. Uh, uh, Willie was featured in the film Urban Gorilla by Alison Argo. And he gained a great deal of fame. He was on the cover of National Geographic and there are many, many uh, PR uh, uh, pieces that were written about him and about us because I'm kind of linked with him in my career. But he also, I also did some things uh, with other animals. The, the uh, felines, as I mentioned, we simply had to close it. Uh, it was just a bad exhibit. And I thought it was doing us more harm than good. So until I could build a new one, I um, essentially just closed it in place and it was a feline house where we managed the animals. We did not exhibit them. So gradually we built a tiger exhibit. We built a lion exhibit. And uh, we were able to build naturalistic exhibits, uh, much like the Jones and Jones plans in Seattle and elsewhere. Uh, so piece by piece, one by one, we, I would say we liberated species to live naturally, to live better. And those reforms required a complete rebuild of the entire facility. And over that 18 year period, we built everything uh, over again uh, with the inspiration of uh, what I call now wellness inspired design. Wonderful. And in, in, in over all this time, you also documented this with all your students and colleagues and a lot of this work was published in peer-reviewed papers in books and where can people find more information if they're interested we can of course put some links um, to some of the key aspects of your findings well i've reviewed uh, the findings in a number of different places uh, i wrote the book professor in the zoo when i first went to jacksonville and i wanted to uh, describe uh, how I approached uh, zoo management from the unique perspective of a professor rather than a business person. I have high respect for business, uh, by the way, and I learned a lot from my business mentors, but we had a kind of division of labor. I solved the animal problems and they managed the business problems. So by working together, we figured out a way to do it. Um, but I had almost complete autonomy in, in animal decisions. So um, that process was described in Professor. It also uh, is evident in, my, in a couple of other books. Uh, I wrote a book on zoo animal welfare uh, with Bonnie Perdue, one of my former students, who is now at Agnes Scott College in Atlanta. And I wrote most recently the book uh, Beyond Welfare, uh, which is uh, uh, the exposition of the construct wellness and how wellness can be applied to uh, augment and uh, uh, re-examine welfare issues. 
from a broader perspective, uh, applying particularly the human literature and what we know about human wellness. Um, so that was a real uh, different uh, approach, a different look, and a lot of people scratched their heads when I began to use wellness. But I think it's widely accepted now as an alternative or an expansion of welfare. And it's a little more understandable. People tell me that when they talk about wellness with the animals at the zoo, that uh, visitors immediately understand, donors and supporters understand. They don't completely understand animal welfare. It's kind of, uh, do we send them a check every month or what? <laughs> they get with welfare and is used with people. But wellness has expanded my horizon at least. Uh, of course, I published a lot of individual articles with my students and my collaborators over the years. There is an interesting volume that you, you can obtain on Amazon, which is a fresh shrift volume uh, that celebrates my career and the career of those who worked with me. All of the uh, people that worked with me that wrote essays, I wanted them to talk about themselves more than anything else. So you can get a sense of the teamwork and the collaboration uh, that's represented in that book. Uh, and by the way, uh, uh, my colleague uh, in, in Brazil, Igor Moraes, has translated uh, Beyond Animal Welfare and Professor in the Zoo to Portuguese. And both volumes have been published and they're available at Amazon. Uh, we are also uh, commissioning a Spanish language edition, uh, and both books will be uh, translated and published into Spanish. So I think the reach of these two books in particular is going to be uh, quite awesome. Wonderful. We'll make sure with the podcast to put all kinds of links to the Urban Guerrilla film, to, to your books, to Tight Spaces, so that people really, um, you know, have an easy time finding all your work and of course they can easily google you uh, and and find you on google scholar with all the publications that you and your collaborators have done and you have already you know pointed to an evolution in you know even words like welfare well-being wellness um, and before we dive deeper into that could you talk about uh, the history of animal welfare in the usa or specifically to zoos uh, or other animals, if you like. Well, in USA, uh, the Animal Welfare Act was developed uh, primarily by uh, people in biomedicine and agriculture. Uh, I think that history is equally true in, in Europe and beyond. But uh, later on, uh, zoo professionals got involved in this. Uh, you'd think today that that's really what it's all about, but. A uh, tremendous effort has been made uh, to change the way we manage uh, chickens and pigs and cows. Uh, all of that uh, was truly revolutionary. <clears throat> the the uh, transition to zoos is a little more recent, uh, but we it was really our science that lagged behind. Uh, there was interest, but we didn't have enough scientists focusing on zoo animals, but today there's a tremendous interest and wide participation by students and faculty, uh, many of whom have moved over from agriculture and biomedical settings. So today it's an integrated field. Uh, the science has been advanced by uh, 
changes in publication. Uh, we had a zoo-type journal years ago, Zoologica, that was published by the New York Zoological Society, but it failed. And uh, so when I began to think about a new journal, um, I started testing the waters. And there was some interest, but a lot of people were skeptical that there was enough going on to publish papers in the journal. Uh, but I went ahead and persevered, and I asked the right questions of AZA. I didn't ask them to support me financially or invest anything at all. I simply uh, told them I was going to do it. I was going to use a New York publisher. It wouldn't be uh, an expense of anybody in AZA, but I would involve people in AZA who had scientific interests and scientific backgrounds. So we launched the journal in 1981. The first article, uh, the, the lead article in the first issue, was a paper on space and chimpanzees by Franz Duval and one of his students. I was quite proud of that fact because it was a, an article that contradicted a little bit the research of uh, my mentor, Robert Summer, because uh, Duval found that uh, chimps in a zoo, when they were crowded, had the ability to cope, whereas rats in the Calhounian studies 10 years ago uh, fell apart and psychologically were damaged. So again, it had something to do, I guess, with the cognitive abilities of these animals uh, to respond to emergencies and, and challenges. Uh, I've been uh, interested recently in the uh, construct of uh, uh, revitalization and uh, the ability of uh, uh, animals and people to adapt and cope. Although I also have stated in some of my work that I don't think coping is good enough. Uh, some people think that if you cope with captivity, that's better than suffering, and I agree with that. But there's another stage, and that stage is thriving. So I begin to talk about thriving as an expression of wellness. So that opens up the frontier uh, a lot bigger and uh, allows us to look at the way animals adapt and deal with their circumstances. And can you also talk a little bit about how, you know, there's so many different fields of animal welfare. And as you said, you know, science has contributed to um, animal welfare changes and legislation. What um, were some of the welfare topics that you, you mentioned already, behavior? Um, what are some of the specific topics um, of welfare science in zoos? Perhaps you have some examples or, or other case studies to share. Well, I kind of started out uh, with, a, with my primate books. In 1989, we edited a book called Captivity and Behavior. And then I published a, a orangutan behavior and gorilla behavior. And in all those books, I aim to integrate the field and uh, lab zoo research to give to practitioners the tools they needed to manage them better. So right in those books, there was information about how the animals lived in the wild, how they adjusted to captivity, and, and what were the issues. And each uh, taxon, I looked at the variables that control behavior 
and uh, there are a wide variety of things like use of space, um, the uh, socialization history, and uh, as I say, even the cognitive powers of the animals and the architecture and design effort. Uh, and you look back in the history of it and you see these, what again, what some are called hard architecture, cages and bars and uh, various uh, ways of confinement that remind us of prisons. Whereas in the naturalistic uh, approach, you give the animals a, a lot uh, more space, better space, and you create a, a lush, comfortable environment for them, and they do better. They also are allowed to form social groups. You want to do that so that they are properly socialized. All of this was revolutionary back in the old days. Uh, we, uh, my colleague Ben Beck and I, served on a number of committees together, and one of the things that we were working on uh, in the old days was to try to uh, keep gorillas from being separated from their mothers uh, because the conventional wisdom in zoos was the animals died from neglect so they would remove them and hand rear them when you hand rear them they're not going to get the best socialization so we argued convincingly and won that argument so that almost every zoo now leave the babies with their mothers sufficiently long time to give them a chance. And then each successive generation is socialized enough to where the problem of neglect and abuse uh, does not uh, appear. So this is another way in which the primate work and the human work uh, kind of coincide. Yes, and I think it's, it's really, it's so important as you say, you know, the, doing the science and then seeing how that science can be applied, how it, you know, enters the best practice guidelines that we have for the animals in our care. So there's so many, you know, just like AZA and EASA and many other zoo associations today have these guidelines that are also yeah. full of science and, you know, how to apply that. And you've been uh, involved in uh, EASA and with EASA and other zoo associations for many years in different capacities. And you were, had also a presidency time with uh, AZA and um, really, you know, highlighting the importance of establishing relationships between zoos and local universities. Can you please talk a little bit to that? Well, I was the last president uh, of AZA in the 20th century. And uh, in fact, they don't have presidents now. They have chairs of the board elected by the membership. And um, I prioritized, prioritized science and some other things. One of the things I did was introduce the diversity uh, idea, which we had practiced well in Atlanta. And it is now another a big issue with AZA. Uh, but I put that plank in. Uh, in uh, 1999. Uh, so I should mention also that Hediger said something very interesting about uh, the, uh, the issue of science. He, he said uh, science is always last in the zoological garden, the last for support, the last priority. Uh, and for many zoos, it was ignored entirely. 
But um, it turns out that the key to animal welfare is science. And so I say that if uh, animal welfare is a high priority, and I think it should be just as high as conservation, then science can't be last because it supports the uh, animal welfare uh, information that we use. Uh, so it's elevated to a higher priority. So uh, I think we've learned this. Almost every zoo is engaged in some kind of science and conservation effort. But uh, the ones that are, that are really advanced and they're publishing in competitive journals, they're allowing their scientists uh, free reign to do research rather than just manage the collection. Uh, those are fewer and farther between. Yes, and I think, you know, a lot of us who are in animal welfare science, we often when you look at the publications and where they come from, it's, it's as we say, almost like the usual suspects as in, you know, the, the more, you know, whether it's Chester Zoo or Lincoln Park or Brookfield or Zoo Atlanta or San Francisco, there's like so many of these hubs around the world that it, it, it looks like a lot of the welfare science seems to come out of various research um, centers or Detroit Zoo. And, um, and of course, this is something that hopefully is going to change in time that more and more zoos are going to have dedicated animal welfare researchers on staff, uh, like they have educators and others on staff, right? Yes, that's, uh, that's a trend. The, yes. uh, the uh, hiring of uh, doctoral level personnel is a recent trend. Um, I've been fortunate that having produced a lot of graduate students, many of them were hired uh, by the zoos that now had a, a greater uh, appreciation for their expertise. People like uh, 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 Tara Stowinski at the Fosse Fund, and Cal Burks, who's at the Audubon Nature Center, Kristen Lucas, who was at Cleveland, uh, Jackie Ogden was one of my students. And all of these uh, people have had impact. So uh, the, the um, situation has changed quite a bit. And I'm really happy uh, with the progress they've made and the various jobs they've held. And uh, in Jackie's case, she was elected uh, chairman of the board for AZA and uh, others have risen to high levels, including director's jobs. So. Um, more and more scientists are getting involved in the zoo world and they're, they're uh, doing well. Yes, no, absolutely. I think it's a wonderful trend that so much is happening in that sphere. And so you are not only a zoo director emeritus, but you are a professor emeritus because you spent many years at Georgia Tech and you also founded the Center of Conservation and Behavior. Can you tell us all about that? Well, I was at Tech for 30 years, and uh, it was in 1984. Uh, I had just been promoted to full professor and was feeling pretty good about my career in academia when the zoo blew up, and they asked me to join the, them, join the team. And uh, um, I asked my wife whether I should take the job, and she made the famous words, you can't make it any worse, Terry. <laughs> <So, laughs> compliment. But uh, 
indeed, I, I was able to get traction fairly early on. And once the community realized that the zoo was going to be managed competently, and by the way, I don't take that credit for myself. They were hiring a Georgia Tech professor, and they had very high confidence in Georgia Tech. So that's what led, I think, to my early acceptance. I was not very experienced at the time, although I was well known for the research I was doing. Uh, I was still a fairly young guy and inexperienced. But it was the challenge of my lifetime. And uh, I appreciated the opportunity, really, even though day by day it was pretty painful. Uh, we had to overcome a lot of obstacles and a lot of personnel issues. Later. Uh, well, I, I was allowed leave time. Uh, I went down to a 50% time. Uh, uh, they allowed me to do that because I was sitting in an endowed chair. And the endowed chair allowed me to invest the money they would have paid me to my, uh, support my students. So uh, with that in mind, uh, uh, the university was very supportive of my involvement with uh, zoo leadership. Um, they got a lot of uh, good publicity out of it. I identified new resources for students and for research, and we were very, very productive. So my academic career never, never faltered. It was a, a wonderful uh, partnership from the very beginning. And I think I proved that it could work, uh, but it was not easy. I had two demanding full-time jobs I had to be as competitive as any other professor with half the time to spend at it. But uh, I thought it worked real well for me, and uh, I was, like I say, happy for the opportunity to do something unique. Uh, and we, uh, we had more opportunities for these students because of my leadership. I could open the doors for them. And uh, I think the record shows, if you look back and see what we've done, uh, you can see how it worked uh, extremely well. Uh, there aren't a lot of zoos that, from the very beginning of their reform, uh, were scientifically based. Closest thing I could come to would be uh, the zoo in uh, uh, in uh, Germany, uh, Leipzig, which unfortunately lost two of their lead scientists, and I'm not sure what happened to the funding for that program, but it was very unique and it was much like uh, the way Yerke started himself working with zoo animals and uh, captive animals that were not in the university. Uh, and I always admired what they did at Leipzig. Uh, one of the leaders there was Mike Tomasello who came up through Atlanta, primatologist of some, some talent. Uh, so Zoo Atlanta um, was a very small zoo with a very small budget, but because we shared talent with the university and we had students who frankly worked cheap, <laughs> we were able to do a lot more than most zoos. Recent uh, study has shown that uh, Zoo Atlanta is the sixth most productive by publications of any zoo in the world. So that's pretty amazing for a zoo that started out as a pariah and uh, became respected because of its science. Absolutely amazing. I think also it's just wonderful, like you say, you know, you had 
half the time and <laughs> how you know you're being humble when you say you think it worked out well i think it's amazing uh, all the things that you've done you know writing over 12 books and and so many publications and the influences that you've had so i think it's it's pretty amazing and also like you say zoo atlanta and how active they are and also as an example that you don't need to be a very big zoo or a big facility to actually make a difference in science and in applied animal care and welfare so that's just wonderful those all those examples you know i used to tell my staff uh, and i said this to the people at palm beach when i went there also you don't have to be big to be great you just have to exactly. be great yes. and the way you become great is you're smart and uh, i really learned that from the ford motor company uh, they were one of our chief sponsors and they were always telling me, you know, we're not the biggest automaker, but we think we're the best automaker. <laughs> right. <laughs> they gave us a tremendous amount of support in, in Atlanta and they're still helping. And so that's been a wonderful partnership also with the private sector. Beautiful. You have done so many different things. You were also the founding editor of the scientific journal Zoobiology. And can you tell us more about that journal for people who are not familiar with it? Well, Zoo Biology now has been operating, I think, for 37 continuous years, something like that. It's hard to believe. Uh, at, because there were skeptics, uh, some people who didn't think we'd be able to succeed. But one of the things I did, because of my connections to biomedicine, I recruited papers from primate centers and laboratories that worked on problems that apply to zoos. I didn't just wait for the zoo material to come. And by soliciting material, special issues and other things, I was able to uh, build the journal at a time when the submissions were low. But I always thought that the journal itself would uh, improve the uh, environment for science, that they would ge literally generate papers by its very existence. And indeed, I think it has. Uh, all the editors, uh, there have been four editors now, added a little bit to it. Uh, I spent seven and a half years uh, as chief editor. Don Lindbergh followed me. He spent 10 years, and Don's a very talented uh, person and did many great things for the journal. Right now, as you know, Jason Waters is the editor. So the journal uh, goes around to different places to be edited by different experts. Now, I just wrote a paper for publication about uh, my experience working with talented women. Uh, when I started in the business, uh, women were not in high leadership positions in zoos. This has dramatically changed. And uh, the secret of my success is all the talented women who worked with me. It's kind of a, an amazing thing. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, there has yet to be a woman editor of zoo biology. So I'm going to send out the clarion with this podcast. I'm hoping the next editor will be a woman. There are a lot of talented women, including my former students. But frankly, many of them have told me they were so busy with their careers, they didn't want to get distracted by editing a journal. But in academia, that's really not the way things work. The best scientists almost have to be editors of journals. That's how you keep the science going. And uh, I'm hoping one of them will see the light. And I'm hoping the current uh, 
leaders in the zoo biology uh, uh, management team will see fit to uh, examine women candidates. You know, you can never say, well, it has to be a woman, but, but there are plenty of candidates if they'll show an interest. I think it would be a good thing in this era of diversity to uh, see a woman leader. Wonderful. We'll make sure that announcement comes through clear. And uh, yeah, there are many very talented uh, women out there doing welfare research. So yeah, absolutely. That would be lovely to see happening. So you have written a lot about uh, great apes. I remember myself buying the book that you um, wrote together with others on great apes and humans, the ethics of coexistence. Can yeah. you talk a little bit more about the great ape research that you have done uh, at the zoo? Well, I, I got lucky when I was hired by Emory University in 1975. Uh, they had uh, 100 applicants for that job. There have never been a lot of animal behavior positions, but this is one of the very best positions because it gave me access to the uh, largest collection of great apes in the world. And of course, I had been um, the champion of Robert Yerkes, had followed his career and, and realized that there were a lot of parallels between his and mine. He worked with the, only one gorilla the gorilla Congo, who was owned by a person in Jacksonville, interesting, and that he was uh, living at um, Ringling Brothers in Florida. Uh, and as I said, uh, he, I didn't mean to say that Congo was a female. <laughs> no, sorry about that. Anyway, Congo uh, was uh, the animal he looked at uh, for uh, mentation, uh, uh, the uh, cognitive uh, abilities of the animal. He, he studied an orangutan who was owned by a private citizen who had been one of his students at Harvard, uh, G.B. Hamilton, who was actually a psychiatrist. And he was living in Montecito, California on a large estate with a captive orangutan that he brought in. So Yerkes studied that animal. And of course, he did have quite a bit of experience with chimps. And he worked with uh, Madame Arbreu's collection in Cuba and later on uh, built a primate center comprised of great apes. Uh, and that uh, was uh, later moved to Atlanta at Emory. So there it was, you know, I was able to walk right in the door and figure out a way to work with these great creatures. I had always been fascinated by uh, gorillas in particular. Uh, so the challenge was, uh, was there because there had not been a lot of integrated comparative research. So we wanted to know how chimps were similar to gorillas and orangutans and how they were different. And it was a very, very uh, fruitful period of my career. And uh, I wrote books that I think made a difference in the way the animals are studied and the way that they're managed. And uh, this opened up other opportunities for us uh, to study other animals in different locations. So uh, now when the zoo began to change, uh, I always had the idea that we would build a great ape exhibit and call upon Yerkes to uh, give us animals on loan. 
And indeed, we were able to make that deal. And Yerke sent uh, a number of gorillas, I believe it was seven, and then uh, something like 10 orangutans once we built habitats that we considered to be world-class. And Yerkes was happy to have the animals there. They were living better at the zoo than they were at the primate center, frankly. So uh, it was a partnership between Yerkes and the zoo. And uh, uh, that was a, a very important partnership because it opened up a lot of scientific doors in endocrinology and uh, other fields, uh, not just behavior. Uh, and uh, we began to work together to find out more and more things about infertility and, and other things. Uh, down the line, we decided to do something on ethics, which had never been done before. Uh, ben Beck and I and Mike Hutchins collaborated on this project. And uh, we went to Smithsonian for support for the book we wanted to plan. And we had a conference which became Ethics on the Ark. Ethics on the Ark had been a very, very successful book. And uh, we were happy with it uh, to the extent that there were other things that needed to be said. So we had uh, a chance to do another book, which was uh, the Coexistence book. And uh, in both cases, there was a, a lot of evaluation of criticism and uh, a lot of uh, bridge building between the various factions. And when we did the conference, one of the things that I contributed to it, because Zoo Atlanta was the host, Brian Norton was my colleague at, at Georgia Tech who got involved with this. He's an environmental ethicist. And I told Brian, I said, I don't want to have a bunch of grandstanding uh, critics, you know, uh, unfurling banners and climbing around downtown and having press conferences. I want this to be a scholarly meeting, a civil meeting, and an opportunity to dialogue and compromise. So let's invite only highly responsible uh, animal welfare critics. And that left out groups like PETA. And so we picked uh, scholars who uh, had a history of writing about these things. And Brian knew all of these people because of his, his background in ethics. And I think that was the key to a really good conference. And uh, we were able to keep this partnership going for a while. And uh, it opened up some eyes. I think it advanced the issue of animal welfare uh, uh, from a totally scientific point of view. And uh, I was happy that we were able to get the book published and AZA supported it because Mike Hutchins, who was working at AZA at the time, uh, convinced them that this was a, a good project, not a dangerous one. Because for many zoos, they were a little afraid of the welfare issue. It took them a while to warm up to it because so many of the critics have been hammering them for the bad habitats for elephants, apes, other creatures. So um, I think that was one of the most interesting phases of my career. Wonderful. I, Ethics on the Ark is one of the first uh, books uh, that I read uh, from a zoo background because I came from psychology. And um, it certainly, you know, opened my eyes and it certainly has, is still, we just launched 
a course yesterday on, on zoo animal welfare and care for veterinary professionals. And, and that book is one of the books that I've put in there because I think people still should know about this book and read this book. And as you say, it's been highly successful. Um, but today, um, one of the things that I find is that people don't necessarily read uh, all the books that are out there and older books or they're not available digitally. And so it's always really good to put, um, you know, all kinds of links out to also some of the older books and, and that like you make reference also to Heidegger's, you know, work really, you know, looking at what has come before a lot of what is going on now. So I'm really glad you, you talk through this um, in depth. Thank you for that. So you have written a lot of different books and you already alluded to the zoo animal welfare book that you uh, published with Bonnie Purdue and of course professor in the zoo which was a really unique perspective and before we conclude uh, the podcast could you take a little bit more of a deeper dive in about your book on beyond animal welfare and um, the wellness concept well, again, I began to uh, look at this when I was at Palm Beach Zoo. And I actually was planning a new veterinary center and I decided uh, I wanted to have a wellness component because I had become impressed with how much resource was put into the human health industry. And that includes uh, gyms and exercise centers and nutrition. And, I mean, uh, millions and billions of dollars are expended for people to try to get well. And you, if you ask somebody, how well do you want to be? They never say, well, a little bit well. They want to be really well. So um, I thought we weren't doing that with animals in the zoo. We, we were uh, uh, okay with animals that coped, lived better if we enlightened uh, our management uh, skills and created uh, good habitats for them but they weren't the optimum necessarily and so i began to think uh with the, the human beings uh attitude how can we build habitats where the animals will be truly well to the optimum and that involved the construct of thriving so thriving has become the big word uh and uh you know, I think people understand entirely what this means. We can't do it without a lot of resources. It's going to be very expensive. And if we want every animal in the zoo to thrive, it's going to take a lot of good ideas uh, built over a long period of time. So everything we've done so far may not be good enough as we move forward. So to me, it's opened up a world of opportunity. And uh, we're getting ahead of our critics when we apply the wellness construct. I also uh, used in the last chapter of that book, some ideas from well building certification, which is a new field. Uh, previously, we had sustainability uh, with LEED and uh, a lot of zoos have, have built LEED uh, exhibits and LEED facilities. But this well construct um, is a little bit different. It has to do with uh, the human person, uh, human that's involved in management and working in the office and keeping the zoo going and the visitor. Uh, how do we create buildings that are clean and efficient 
and especially right now in this COVID thing, um, good air, uh, you know, good uh, 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 facilities that are clean and safe. If you follow these well ideas, this is a new frontier for zoos. There has not yet been, as far as I know, a well-certified building in a zoo, not yet. But if they read this chapter, I think they're going to want to do it. And uh, I, I was hoping we might do it in Jacksonville, we'll see. But the COVID thing kind of stopped everything. I'm hopeful that when COVID is over, there'll be even more motivation to introduce well building certification. Excellent. I already look forward to hearing a lot more about that and following uh, what people will be doing in this sphere. That's that's really interesting. And I think it's a, such a, as you say, such a different concept. Like you mentioned earlier, when you say welfare, a lot of people think indeed about financial support and others. And this whole concept is easier for sure in education and communication, but also in what ways can does that really expand current animal welfare and care programs uh, to the level of thriving that you're talking about? And, you know, of course, every in the decades and decades of your work in zoos and research and, of course, you know, working in different programs, you know, before we conclude, do you have any uh, fun animal stories? We all love good stories uh, that you could share with us or like an inspiration for animal care professionals. Well, I've got a funny story about Willie B, the singleton gorilla that we worked with. Uh, when he was introduced to females and began to show affinity for them, um, it was a young female that uh, coaxed him into copulating for the first time. And I remember when the keeper up there called my office and said, you gotta come up here. He never did that for any other reason. We said, you gotta see this. So I uh, sprinted up there as fast as my large body could go uh, to see him in the act of copulating. And as I began to watch him, uh, we continuously studied him and uh, with changes he was making in his own uh, social life. Um, we began to see how well he was motivated. And one day I saw him copulating. And while he was copulating with uh, this little female, he had a cabbage in his hand. Willie was a pretty big gorilla when we uh, got to work with him and he, he had to be put on a diet pack. So I, I was just trying to sort of picture what was going on in his mind because he would, he would thrust a little bit and then he would turn and look at the cabbage and take a bite. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to imagine he's in there saying, oh, which one of these do I like best, the cabbage or the girl? <laughs> you know? but, but he was a fascinating animal and probably the most famous gorilla in the world at once. Yeah, wonderful. And do you have a last inspiration for people working in animal care, in welfare? You already said, you know, this whole idea of looking to the future and what thriving and what wellness is about, and perhaps or a nugget from your research of like, you know, don't forget this or remember that. Um, in some final words as we conclude the podcast. Well, there, there, there's a universe of animals out there. One of the great things about zoos is no university can put together a laboratory as complex as a zoo collection. 
And when that's made available to the university, there's huge opportunity. And any zoo could do it with a nearby university. They just have to make the deal and work together to share resources. Once you begin to study the animals in the collection, uh, there are so many species that have not been well studied. There's much we can learn. So I just encourage young people to uh, get their degrees and take a look at uh, zoo biology as a field. Uh, I know that they will uh, be successful and the zoo world is gonna get uh, better and better with each uh, uh, young person who steps in to make a difference. Wonderful. Like, you know, even if we don't have money, uh, we always have doors and it's a matter of opening those doors. And as you say, you know, have, doing the science that is really moving care and welfare programs forward. Absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for coming onto this podcast and sharing. You know, we'll have to have you back for more stories and more history and more aspects because your decades and decades of, you know, commitment and contribution to this field is amazing is so valuable and i'm very grateful that you came onto the podcast uh, for us today well i'm looking forward to our next uh, meeting all right already the end of the podcast i hope you enjoyed that as much as we did find us on your favorite platform and leave your comments and suggestions or go to the animal concepts website to send us your questions and feedback. We are so happy to answer them and address them in future podcasts. Animal Concepts is dedicated to helping you care for animals and yourself. Are you interested in quality animal care and welfare content, in actions and resources for you to be well while caring for animals? Then check out PAWS, the practical animal welfare science platform, which has webinars, science into practice case studies, private Facebook live sessions, and a lot of resources for you and the animals you care for. You can share your experiences and connect to animal care professionals and scientists from around the world. In the meantime, take care of you and the animals and keep buzzing. <laughs>